companioning and consoling more and more. They became like main words. Uh, and maybe that's just what people say when they get old, but uh, I, I actually think it's what we ought to be saying at any age, old or young, uh, that that's that somehow fundamentally, uh, g- given the nature that life is complex and demanding and uh, also gorgeous and amazing, uh, what can we do but console and companion? We can we can actually uh, 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 companion and rejoicing. You know, it's not all companioning and consolation, but companioning and rejoicing. Say, wow, I really loved. I turned on several times during the day. I um, I guess it was the day before yesterday that that baby boy was born, wasn't it? I turned on, I, I, I watched throughout the day, and um, I had a lot of pleasure in seeing how many people were excited about that event. It was like, an, uh, I, I think that happens sometimes. There are iconic events, and sometimes they're tragedies. You know, the world stopped when John Kennedy was assassinated. Um uh, the world stops a little bit when there's a terrible thing happening. And that the world stops a little bit when there's a remarkable thing happening. I also learned from it. I've been I've been thinking this whole week about it's coming up it being coming on to my birthday and my birthday and my birthday. And at first I thought to myself, well this is a really a big birthday because it's a not it's a prime number. Then I thought, no it isn't. You know, after I, I give it a lot of effort, I put a lot of energy and it's a prime number. Then I thought, well, that's ridiculous. It's not a prime number at all. It's divisible by itself and by one and also by seven and by 11. What was I thinking about? It's, it's not a prime number. So, so much for that. But, but actually what's remarkable about it is that I made it to that. You know, my, my father was 72 when he died. My mother was 47 when she died. I'm I'm the oldest living person in my whole family. I've been for a long time. And the other day I was thinking about things being, uh, someone said there you know, been so many coincidences in my life. And I am more and more convinced that everything is a coincidence. I mean, it's a coincidence. Some are really remarkable that you should meet somebody in such and such a place. I always think about my friend so-and-so who went to... Um, who went to uh, Europe, uh, went to France the summer after she graduated from university 37 years ago or something to visit her um, college roommate who had, they just graduated together and the roommate went home. She went to France to visit the college roommate who lived in the south of France and she got on the, plane, the train in Paris, she got on the TGV to go down to the south of France and sat down in an empty seat next to the man whom she married and has been married to this whole time. So you think, what if she took the train after? Or what if she took the train before? But every once in a while, I think to myself, our whole life is what if we took the train before or after? What if we answered that ad on eHarmony and not the other one? What if we went out on this date and not the other one? What if this, what if that, what if we turned left? What if we left five minutes later? What if we left five minutes before this particular calamitous accident? 
what if we got on Asiana Airlines and that day instead of the day after or the day before? It's a long, it's a very big what if that, you know, to, to think that uh, I, I, I started to think about, gives you a, a hint of what kind of a, I don't know whether it was melancholy or whatever uh, uh, adolescent I was, or maybe all adolescents are a little bit moody in this way. Anyway, I was a little bit preoccupied with, uh, or occupied with, how how odd life is, how amazing. And uh, in my family, my father's uh, favorite blessing was a blessing that Jews say when they reach a special remarkable occasion, like once again Rosh Hashanah, or once again their birthday, or uh, maybe not once again, but uh, on this occasion, getting married. And uh, they say a certain blessing of thanksgiving that... Uh, remarkably enough, they were sustained in life and allowed to keep living by whatever the karma of the world and the, what happens to them. Here they are, and that they, in essence, it says, "Thank goodness!" Or literally, "Thank God, I made it till now." It could have been otherwise. Um, and I began to think when I was quite young that we should say that every day when we get home, if our whole family sits down again to dinner. And nobody got hurt during the day. Nobody got lost. Nothing befell anybody. They're all there. It's a minor miracle because it could have been otherwise. Do you know that poem by Jane Kenyon? I can't do it by heart, but it's called Otherwise. And the the refrain line is, it could have been otherwise. It could have been otherwise. It could have been otherwise. And then at the end it says, and someday it will be otherwise. That's like major dharma, you know. One of the things that I think about more and more as I get older and more knowledgeable in teaching Dharma is I like to think not so much as Dharma as what the Buddha taught, although that's the word we use for what the Buddha taught, but actually uh, the word for wisdom. And then it becomes transparochial. It's what every wisdom tradition teaches. It might be other, but it's this. Wow, that's a miracle. You think about it, you think, ah. How do you say that, Mijo? Walk into ultra, um, ultra, ultra. It also means courage, I was told. I think it means courage. The last words that the Buddha has, was supposed to say, well, they say, that the Buddha, as he lay dying in the, in the sutta that says his final teaching. He says this is the, he said a couple of very wonderful things. Uh, one of the things he said is really uh, the most important thing. I, I'm, uh, I'm chuckling as I say this because I went to hear my friend and teacher and colleague Joseph Goldstein teach the other night up on top of the hill because he's teaching a retreat up there. And it's wonderful to listen to him teach because uh, he's very deliberate and thoughtful about what he says. And uh, he said at several points, he said, and this is the very important line. And then he says something. So, And I talked to him a little bit afterwards to say, I really enjoyed that talk. And I said, I really enjoy your pedagogy. 
where you tell people, and this is what I'm now going to tell you what's really important. He said, well, you have to do that. You have to tell people this is important. Pay attention. And then what he said was uh, some... Uh, Everything that has the nature of arising has the nature of passing away. Sometimes you read it as everything that begins has an end. Uh, all con- transient are all conditioned things, depending on the translation that you read. But in that sutta, that seems, that's the penultimate line that he said, transient are all conditioned things. And then the last line which has translated all different things, the most recent and the 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 the, uh, uh, the uh, translation or the version that I like the best is Andy Olensky, who's the co-director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, translates it as move into the future with confidence, which is maybe what ultraria ultraria means, move into the future with confidence. Uh, it's a different, different. You know, I'm thinking, what? Why not? You know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a way of looking at life experience and thinking, you know, it's so fragile. Imagine those parents of those two girls, the, those two, the those two Chinese students. They were coming to Stanford to be in an English program. There were three, three. Third one died. There were three Chinese girls. Imagine what they, you know, how they prepared, took the test, coming to Stanford, going to learn English. There's a sense of a whole life ahead of them. Their parents must have been so excited for them. And then what happens? And you think all over the world, every day, there are so, so many disappointments because things things happen in a natural world. And how to be able to say, and... It's extraordinary that there's a natural world. You can depend on the moon rising in the way it's supposed to every day. You can depend on the earth not falling out of its orbit. You can depend on if you step off uh, top of a building that you'll fall down. But if you stay on the ground, you won't fall through the floor usually. Uh, there are a lot of things that, that you can depend on. You can depend on... Think about how babies get born. Is that... You know, I I I, <laughs> I had four babies, and I thought they were beautiful and they were remarkable. But I didn't at the time think it was a complete miracle. When you think about it, you hardly do anything, and nine months later it comes out a person. You know that that's the most amazing thing with a spleen and fingernails. How does it do that? You know, that's an amazing thing. DNA is amazing, and it looks like you. What's more, you know, that's really amazing. If you look around for what's amazing, it's the whole thing is amazing. I, I think I told you last week, I told you probably a million times, uh, because I'm always astounded that I haven't taken it up, but anyway, it's Susan's thing. Susan has an automatic signer of her email. She probably pushes a button because the email gets signed, stay amazed. I don't know that there's a better teaching slogan in the world than that. Stay astounded, stay amazed. Because you look around and you say, wow. Which is, the, which is the, the, the view around what's happening to me. It's the view that what is happening. Look at this. Look what's going on. On this great level. On this great level and look at the DNA. And so what I wanted to talk about today, all of those things... 
I was I was particularly paying attention to this week because I was thinking about talking about mindfulness and uh, the really profound meaning of mindfulness, not just paying good attention. I mean, it's great paying good attention and makes everything a little better. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, once again bringing up the the the. I guess it was around this particular magazine, this mindfulness magazine, which is which is fine. It's a it's it's a good magazine. It's an interesting magazine because um, it says um, taking time for what matters. Mindful. This is volume one, number three, and um, uh, it as far as I can see. It does not say the B word anywhere in the whole, in the whole thing. Even the ads for B word centers don't say that. I, the, I, I, if I, I may have missed it, but I see the ad for Omega, ads for other places. It just has completely taken it out. And, I, you know, on the one hand, if I were on a debate team and someone said debate, okay, your side is that's great. Uh, or your side is what a loss. I could be on either team. I could really do a good job on either team. Because really, it's about how to live a life with less less anguish, less pain. Uh, and you know, this is not the be all. And this is one. This is one issue. I think it's it's well written. It's well done. And I'm just wondering a little bit. I'm just wondering a little bit. Because, in, and I, I really, really do not want to, these are my friends who publish it anyway at Shambhala Sun, so I want to be really careful not to say, it is the Shambhala Sun Publishing Company that's published it. So I want to be really careful about it, because uh, I, I, I wonder a little bit how much, uh, and maybe this is all right, it's uh, seemed a little bit... Um, how can we make our lives better? How can I make my life better? How can I suffer less? It's a fine. You know, if everybody suffered less, it'd be happier and kinder and it'd be a better world. And I wonder whether what the Buddha taught as the road to suffering less, the, the crucial key in the road to suffering less was not discovering that there isn't an I who's happy or not happy, not catering so much to that separate I that's happy or not happy. That uh, I'm reading this new book. I just started it. It's not so new, but I just started it uh, by Karen Armstrong, who's a wonderful writer on topics of theology. And she says about the Buddha, the Buddha is often compared to non-human beings, to animals, trees, or plants, not because he's subhuman or inhuman, but because he has utterly transcended the selfishness that most of us regard as inseparable from our condition. The Buddha was trying to find a new way of being human. But we, this can easily degenerate into mere self-promotion. Wait a minute, wait a minute. In the West, we prize individualism and self-expression, but this can easily degenerate into mere self-promotion. What we find in Gautama is a complete and breathtaking self-abandonment. 
he would have said there was nothing unique about his life. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. There's a very famous, who knows if the Buddha said all the things that are attributed to him. But one of the things that's attributed to him is someone saying to him, are you a god? And he said, no. And they said, well, are you a normal human being, regular human being? And he said, no. And then they said, well, what are you? And he said, I'm awake. Now, that's, I like that story. That's one of those stories which I hope he said, because otherwise, you know, I'll say it anyway. So, <laughs> there are times that are so... Um, you've had this as well. Something really dramatic happens, either to you or in the world. Uh, maybe you you read about something tragic that happens. I, I was out on my bike and I stopped to get a cold drink and I walked into a convenience store and on the TV was a picture of that Asiana flight sitting on the on the on the tarmac all a burned shell and you look at it and you think oh 200 people on that flight this at this point you didn't even know that anybody got off and it didn't look like that how many people's lives have been turned completely upside down and every day in a thousand different ways in the world, not just flights crashing, but wars happening, disasters happening all over the world. People are tragically disappointed every day. So whatever I was mulling, I don't even remember what I was mulling when I went in for that cold drink, but whatever I was mulling went out of my mind because all of a sudden, in moments like that, all of my stuff, this one should have, that one could have, da-da-da-da-da-da, the kinds of conversation that just chatters in the back of the mind, that goes away because that seems so ridiculously unimportant in the light of... And then I think to myself in those moments, now my head is screwed on really straight. Now I see what's important. What's important is remembering that life is very dear to us and the people we love are very important to us every day that we are still in connection, in loving connection with the people that are dear to us is a miracle. Thank goodness, how can I, what sweet can I do for somebody today? That would be head screwed on right. That would be head screwed on right. And it stays like that, screwed on right for a little while. And then somebody, you know, annoys you. Or you, I annoy myself even more. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I had this interesting experience. I, I, I made a list of the small ways in which the mind contrives to annoy itself. Uh, I, was, I told you last week that I had been very, very involved purposely in watching the Tour de France. Anybody else watched? I watched hours every day. I was mesmerized by it. It's, it's first of all because there's lots of really beautiful photography of uh, aerial photography from helicopters, the the cinematography of NBC Sports was really amazing. So I watched that, and uh, on early on the second or third day of the tour, I noticed a, a Colombian rider who is new to professional racing, and um, they they talked about it every time they said his name. They said the little Colombian rider. He's actually little when he stands on a podium because he actually overall came in second in the whole tour, which was amazing. He's very little. He's very little. He's dark-skinned, which I liked as well. And uh, he's just not the typical bike racer. And, uh, 
and also either serene of visage or just very calm, but whatever. And I, and I, he was appealing to me. I decided I was rooting for him. Then I was, it was like I had adopted him into my heart, you know? And then every day I'd look for where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And you know, when you teach metta and you teach, you pick out a neutral person and it's, and you, in, in, on a retreat, you say to all the people on retreat, okay, look around and amongst all the people here, pick out somebody that you don't know at all and that you have no feelings, you know, towards or against, then not familiar to you. It's called, uh, uh, in the, uh, in the scripture, it's called a neutral person. But that's a, a hard term. I think you can't really figure out what's a neutral person. Because it's a person, after all. So I'd like the idea of a, of a familiar stranger, somebody that you could say, oh, uh, I recognize that person. They're always there on Wednesday or something. You don't know anything more about them or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, pick out, so on retreat, we tell people, pick out a person. And then every time you see that person uh, in your mind, the person doesn't know you've picked them out. You think some blessings for them. May you feel content. May you feel at ease. May you feel strong. Uh, may things be going well for you. Make up the blessings. May you be having a good day. May whatever be troubling you be assuaged. Whatever it is, you pray for them. And you do it when you see them. And you do it when you don't see them. You're sitting on your pillow. You're thinking, well, I'm falling asleep. I'm so sleepy here. It's hot in the afternoon. Wait a minute. I'll think about my person. May they feel safe. May they feel content. And usually people will report, you know, I, per- I perk up when I'm thinking about my person. Like, gives me something to do. It's like I'm in charge of that person. You know, like somebody said, would you please mind this person? You babysit them. And they don't even know that you're babysitting them. But you are babysitting them. And by and by, you start to really, they become dear to you. So I started watching uh, Nero Quintara. Quintara, and I was watching him the whole tour, and then I was watching him, I was really looking for him, he's little, it's hard to find him, so I would look for the, the Mayo Jaune, the, the yellow jersey, the yellow jersey was the person in the lead, the person in the lead for most of the three weeks was Chris Froome, who won the tour, and so I'd look down at this crowd of riders from this aerial view, I'd say, oh, there's the yellow jersey, and right behind the yellow jersey, pedaling right behind his left wheel for the entire time, like a specter, is this little, <laughs> the little Colombian. <laughs> Wherever he went, the little Colombian was on his left rear wheel. And so then I could find him that way. And then at the end, it was very tense, the last couple of races. And I found I was watching, my heart was beating so fast, I had really adopted him so seriously. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, it's like having a child who's in this. And so, you know, ding, 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 ding. I said, what am I doing? I'm making myself all upset. Nero Quintara does not know me. I don't know if I'm increasing his chances of winning by, by praying for him, so to speak, or worrying about where is he? I don't see him. There's Chris Froome. Where is he? But there's a line from the Buddha about... It's a strange line because it says... Uh, uh, everything that's dear to us causes us pain. Now, that's a, that's one of his early sayings. It's probably modified in the later teachings. But, you know, when you don't make something dear to you, you're not worrying about them. Uh, 
And in fact, I, I, uh, in, in the long run, I was delighted that he did so well. But I would have felt disappointed if he would have lost, you know, that you set yourself up by making someone dear to you, whether they succeed or don't succeed. You know, my dog is getting old. I'm starting to worry in advance of him being sick how I'll do without him, you know. That's not even speaking of a person. It's just that everything that becomes dear to you gets a piece of the mortgage of our, of our heart. And we care about them. And we willingly choose that kind of pain. We make people dear to us. So it's been actually a tenet of the Buddha that I have been questioning for a long time. Should we not make things dear to us? And if everything is dear to you causes pain. You could have, I think actually we, lived in a, we live in a different time where relationship and affectful ties occupy a different, there's a different zeitgeist about them than 2,500 years ago. Not to say that people didn't have feelings, but the times were different. Times were different. The expectations for life were different. You know, now we expect people will live long. It's not so chancy having a life. I noticed about one other thing, oh, about things that could cause you pain that 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 come from having a a thought, it should be this way, not that way. First of all, that I'm not in charge of, you know. Uh, I really hoped that Kate Middleton would give birth to a baby girl. I had a lot of energy in that. Not a ton of energy, but a little bit of energy. How many people hope that? Yeah. (laughs) So I said, of course. So it's important to know the reason that I'm so pleased. I would have been so pleased. Of course, may he live and thrive, that baby, and she, and everyone there. But had this baby been a girl, she would have been the first firstborn child of a reigning monarch to have become the reigning monarch, even if she had brothers after her. That's a big move in a world in which women still are underclassed largely in large and large and astounding and in some places catastrophic results in the world i really wanted her to be um, in line to be queen on her own and i noticed that they said oh, da 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 it's a boy and i noticed my mind said fooey you know <laughs> and, and, and so it wasn't an enormous disappointment. But the reason I'm telling you that story is I think so many times in the day we think fooey or oh good, fooey or oh good. Now the question I want to leave you with is, is not, is that bad? Should we be meditating in order for the mind to say whatever it is? That's exactly what I want. Well, whatever it is is what we got. I think that part of it is to be fine about it. But I don't think I. It's not that I don't think the mind can do it. I don't think uh, I can't imagine a life in which it didn't have the drama of hooray and fooey. I, I once, uh, some time ago, was sitting at some sort of um, benefit dinner, and I was sitting next to uh, I was sitting next to George Lucas. So, you know, you sit next to George Lucas, you try to make conversation about. <laughs> trying to say something about movies so I had seen all those movies and I said something about uh, 
we someone had brought up maybe I maybe somebody at the table about why did movies always have to have such a tension you know good guys bad guys and then a resolution he said because that's what makes a story he said if there's no tension there's no movies you know if you just made a movie where people hung around nicely together <laughs> no, nobody would come to see it <laughs> it has to have, the story has to has to be the resolution of some sort of attention. Somebody I know who writes novels told me every novel is once upon a time everything was okay and then deedly 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 and then just in the nick of time da da and then lived happily ever after. That every novel or every every happy novel or every happy movie is like that. I, I I never get nervous watching uh, spy movies like The Born Identity or something like that because you know there's going to have to be another story in the series so he can't get killed. In the end, people will get killed, but the protagonist will not get killed because they have to go on. It has to have a little drama to say. And I don't know if someone came... First of all, I don't get the choice, but it's a thing that we could think about if... Everything that is dear to us causes pain one way or another because we want this and we don't want the other. Would we want to have a mind that didn't uh, respond with, oh, I hope it's this and this. It's all the same to me. Um, somehow, it's, how can it, I, I, it seems clear to me that we can actually want X or Y and have it not be X or Y, and feel uh, dismay about it, without becoming disoriented by the dismay. That, I think, is really the, 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 the bottom line gist of what we're trying to do. A mind big enough to say, you know what? It comes up practically, uh, practically every week someone here tells a story uh, that uh, often they're around... Uh, uh, some discovery that that person has a grievous illness, that's a chronic illness, that changes in some remarkable way their life. From now on, they can't expect to do X or Y anymore. But not life-threatening, so they're going to live a while, but not do what they had planned on. And the... the uh, Somebody in this very class, some long time ago now, uh, told everyone about having had the diagnosis of MS. And she was young, in her 40s. And she said, I have to practice all the more now. Do you remember? I don't remember her name. Was anybody here when she told that story? She said, my father is a woodworker. You were here, Joe. And he made me a big... Uh, plaque from my bedroom wall out of carved wood that says, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. Oh. And to be able to say that and not have your mind get all scrunched up about it, that's an amazing thing to be able to do. And I think that's what we're trying to do. And to be able to do that, I think we have to be able to see the mind about to scrunch and say, okay, relax. Or that it already scrunched, and you say, oh, goodness, the scrunched, okay, relaxed. 
<laughs> that is not the most elegant word for it. <laughs> I think it's the most accurate. I actually think there's an article by me in in this Shambhala Sun. I'd forgotten about it that I just saw yesterday. And I said, oh, goodness. I said, scrunched in the Shambhala Sun. <laughs> it is. There's an article in this Shambhala Sun. You know, they. I, I, I wrote this. this little, it's part of a bigger article about, what's it called? It's called Perfect. But a Beautiful Wish. Well, anyway, I'm not sure what this is, how this got to be part of the... Oh, <laughs> I don't know why it's in that, but anyway. You are already perfect, and you could be a little bit... And you could use a little improvement. That's what it's, <laughs> the name of this. Oh, I, I now I remember what this was about. This was about tell, tell a teaching that improves your life. From Buddhism, mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, so I told this one. Shall I read it to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's short. Uh, remember, Sylvia, be happy. That's what my meta teacher Sharon Salzberg always said to me as I left her room after my practice interviews with her thirty years ago. I usually had my hand on the doorknob, ready to leave, and it was some time before I realized that this was a practice instruction and not a quaint salutation. Nor did I realize that be happy, an instruction that implies choice, was an expression of the third of the Buddha's four noble truths, that peace is possible in this very life, indeed right now, no matter what our circumstances. I thought happiness meant liking something or being pleased. But the happiness of non-suffering is better than that, and the promise that it is always, always available is the great good news of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's the good news that wisdom reveals itself whenever the mind is balanced and alert and that wholesome decisions can prevail in the face of challenge. Someone asked the Dalai Lama once, do you ever get angry? He laughed and replied, of course. Things happen. They aren't what you wanted. Anger arises. He paused and chuckled, but, he continued, it does not have to be a problem. What I understood him to mean is that the momentary constriction that blurs the mind when anger arises is quickly eased by the wisdom that anger is a normal neuronal response to displeasure and not a mandate for any other response than clarity and kindness. I find that when my mind is contented, it's easy, it, it is able to assess my experience accurately. I think of it like seeing through plastic wrap. If it's smooth, I can see through it clearly. If the plastic I am looking through is scrunched up, imagine rumpling a sheet of saran wrap into your fist and then using it semi-unfolded as a lens. I'll see distorted images and quite possibly misinterpret them. So as challenges arise in my daily life, I try to stay alert to any sense of my mind scrunching up I feel it as a tension, often as an invisible form of my brow furrowing, sometimes as a hint that the muscles in my upper arms have tightened. I think to myself, remember, Sylvia, be happy, relax, take a breath, smooth out your mind before you do or say anything. I think this practice has substantially improved my life. I upset myself less. 
I make more wholesome decisions and less inept, impulsive ones. Sometimes when I see my mind about to leap into an inept response and I catch it in time, I honestly feel, phew. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) uh, I remembered it because I said scrunched. But really, to, that, I think, allows you to be the, the possibility for being a fully human pe- person, to be able to really wish this or really wish that, and then be able to say, well, that didn't happen. I think, actually, it's uh, we do that all the time. We do that all the time. We don't even think about it, about, it, about I just did some great thing. I practiced unscrunching. You know, they uh, you go into a restaurant because outside on the menu it says what the what the uh, uh, special for the day is. So it's uh, Thursday. So it's fish and chips, and you think, oh, that's the specialty, fish and chips. I feel like that. Okay, you go in, you sit down. The the server comes around and says, well, we have everything on the menu, but we've run out of the special for the day. <laughs> so you think, oh, you think, fooey, I came in here for that special of the day. But most of the time, you don't get up and go out. You say, well, you know. And the mind takes a second to go up. Okay, no special of the day. Now you go back to square one. You look again. So we do that all the time. Don't have this, I'll do that. Don't have that, I'll do this. And I really think, and some people, by the way, I think do that better than others. Anybody here had more than one child in this life? You notice that difference in your children Amongst my children, I had children that, when they were quite little, you say, uh, turns out we can't go there this afternoon, whatever it was. And they said, you promised, you said, da 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 And others that you say, turns out we can't do it, they say, oh, okay, yeah. You had like that? <laughs> From the beginning, right? From the minute they came out. <laughs> well, who knows the minute they came out, but probably then. Then, more easily soothed, less easily soothed. People have different nervous systems. But not to say that, you know, one is better than, one is easier to live with than the other. (laughs) It probably has big ramifications because the babies that say, well, the babies don't say anything, but the children that are more, uh, what do you call it, Um, amenable, you like them better. That's really the truth. Nobody would say that, that they like one or another better. But in, in fact... You know, if you ask parents decades later, they say, phew, with that one, it was really hard. But at the time, you know, you don't say. But it's really hard. At the time, you think, why do I have this one? My friend has that one, so amenable, so nice, so this, so that. (laughs) But how to, because we're we're absolutely human beings. And of course, we would prefer it, we'd prefer it to be simpler for ourselves, for the other person. We wish. I, I think it would be so strange for uh, wishes not to arise. Somebody tells you about something good. This, this is actually a, a, one of those pieces of, of presumably, you know, Buddhist lore, but it's everybody's lore. The mind in co- the mind in contact with pleasant experiences reaches out for them. Doesn't that happen? I mean, what that means is when you walk by a pizza parlor, and the smell comes out, uh, you think to yourself, ah. Oh, I'm hungry, that smells good. You know, before you smelled, nothing was bothering you. All of a sudden you smell and say, ah, 
hungry. Now I need that. There was one other thing that I definitely wanted to show you for today, and then we'll see where we're going to go with this for today. I finished reading this book, which I liked so much, called Rude Awakenings. I was telling you about it last week. If you weren't here, let me tell you that this is by um, Ajahn Suchito and his friend Nick Scott, two friends who, from what I figure in reading the book, must have been in their late 40s when they undertook to do this pilgrimage uh, in India from Lumbini, where the Buddha was said to have been born, to uh, Bodhgaya, where he had his enlightenment experience, to the place where he died. And they kept journals, both of them, as they traveled. And they're really good writers, so it's entertaining to read. And uh, they had to go to people because uh, Ajahn Suchito wanted to make this pilgrimage. It's a kind of a religious pilgrim's pilgrimage, a pilgrim's trip to visit the special places associated with the Buddha. And he was, is still, a, a monk in robes. So he can't carry money, he can't buy things. Uh, so you need to travel with a companion who buys the tickets when you need railroad tickets and uh, uh, who handles that kind of business stuff with passports and takes care of the business things. And because they were, they'd been friends for a long time before, they undertake to do it together. And what's so uh, touching to me is not so much the experiences of the holy places that they go to, but their relationship as it's unfolding, which you read, because they have one of them, this is written in two voices, Ajahn Suchito talking, and then Nick Scott is talking, and then Ajahn Suchito, and then Nick Scott. And I read you a little bit of it last week, I'm not even sure which parts I remember, but... Oh, uh, Ajahn Suchito primarily was saying it's uh, uh, a little hard to be uh, traveling with, uh, spending so much time with Nick because he talks on and on, and um, but then writing in the journal still. But he's such a good man, and he's trying so hard, and I really love him so much as a person. And you get to see what, if the mind is restrained from saying anything, well, like, uh, we'll have to sit down now, and have a conversation and really be honest with each other about how we're doing. If you can't do that, you work it out internally. I, I took a lot of heart from that. You know that uh, I wonder about how much relationship, how many relationships wouldn't be better off if people didn't talk so much. Anyway, let me not speak for other people's relationships. I wonder often if mine wouldn't be a lot better off if we didn't have so many heart-to-heart talks. And I had a heart-to-heart talk with myself at least half the time, because you talk long enough to yourself about all the ramifications, it goes away because it becomes, in the sphere of the cosmos, so insignificant. Either they did or didn't do that, or they meant or didn't mean it as a slight, or whatever. But in the larger, when you spend a whole life with somebody, they must hold me in good regard. They must really, we must have a relationship worth more than whether or not they X or Y or Z or actually said that this morning. (laughs) 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 This is so ridiculous. There's an ad on television advertising, I think, Dish Network or who knows what. I saw a lot of ads because I watched the bike race. (laughs) 
And the ads are as good as the bike race. Some of them, uh, those ads are great for Dish Network or whatever. But they have an ad with two owls talking. Have you seen that one with the two owls? The who? Is that not a great ad? Like, you know, I could watch that ad for a long time. <laughs> anyway, a man and a woman owl having a discussion. So obviously the, the owls are not speaking English. The depictions of, you know, it's animated owls. And they're talking, and she is saying things. And the other, he, owl, is saying who, <laughs> who, which is all an appropriate, appropriate answers. She says, I'm having lunch. Don't forget I'm having lunch with Agnes tomorrow. He says, who? <laughs> you know, my colleague, Agnes, that I've been working with for all these years, who? <laughs> Can you believe it? He doesn't even know I'm a who. You know, <laughs> it's just very, very funny. Anyway, you don't have to have those kind of talks. Uh, you have it internally where you work it out. So at one point here, I was very, I, w- I was tremendously touched. Wait, 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 let me find this. Um, it's going to be on... Where is it? Oh, I'll feel so disappointed if I can't find it. I'll have to remember it by heart. But I won't remember it by heart. Let's just see if I can find it. Here it is. One of the things that they do as they travel is uh, they make an agreement. Uh, Nick says, I'll I'll do your your schedule with you because Ajahn Suchito is doing a monk schedule which means uh, praying at certain uh, fixed times of the day, doing a certain kind of recitations of blessings. So Nick says, I'll do it with you. He said, we we uh, we compromised. Instead of getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to do the first puja, we'll get up at 3.30. So we're getting up at 3.30 to do the first puja. But he says, good, because then they could walk. They're also walking. They're not taking any kind of conveyance. They're walking across India because the Buddha did. So that's what they're doing. They're walking. So he says it's nice to have that walking early in the morning when it's cool. So they get up and they're walking. And they have to eat before noon because the other, the principal rule for Theravada monks is you don't eat ever when the sun has passed over the zenith of the sky. Collect alms rounds in the morning you can eat a very early morning breakfast and you can eat at 11 o'clock. But you can't eat afternoon at all. You can drink water, you can drink tea, but you can't eat till the next day. And you can't ask for food either. You walk around in robes carrying a, a bowl and in a culture where people know that they're supposed to put st- offer stuff to you, you can't stick out the bowl and say, can I have something? You're supposed to just be there, and people can will say, the formal way to say it is, can I offer you breakfast, Ajahn? Can I offer you lunch? And then you say, thank you. So, um, so it gets to be a little tense in those situations where they haven't found a village by mid-morning, or they find a village, but nobody makes a move to do anything. And you can't say, could you offer us lunch? So they talks about going to a certain, uh, they go to a, a certain visa office oh, to change traveler's checks so that Nick is going to change traveler's checks to do something or other. Um, 
but uh, so that they could, because uh, Nick can buy them tea later in the afternoon. But uh, it's taking a long time in this travels check changing office, and uh, uh, this is uh, Ajahn Sujita talking. He says, "I'm ta- I'm watching them and I'm watching them." And I'm seeing that it's getting later, and it's getting later, and it's getting later, and I'm feeling more tense, and it's getting later. Then they say, then he says, when the hands of the clock moved past 12, I relaxed. We could forget about eating for the day. Waiting eventually cuts through the tendons of personal motivation and lets things take their natural course. I thought that's such an interesting thing to say. And so, you know that there's a there's there's certain finality about well that's it as long as there's a possibility we might eat we might eat we might eat we might eat then there's a certain tension about when are they going to offer what can I do what can I do that will still not be the wrong thing like stick the bowl out and look at it with a big look or something. Uh, but then once there's no possibility. I was thinking about the way in which uh, when my father was very sick with um, uh, a cancer that uh, we thought would uh, was not curable but was treatable for a long time. As long as there were treatments, we'd go to treatments, we'd say, are they working? We'd go to, other, we'd go to supplementary treatments. And for actually for four years, all those different treatments kept his cancer in remission. And then it came out of remission. They changed the chemotherapy. This is a long time ago now. It's more treatable now. And then at a certain point, it became untreatable. And then there was a certain relaxation about it. There's no place else to go and nothing else to do. Um, I remember um, uh, even longer ago, before my father, when I was really in my... um, my late 30s, early 40s. My first uh, lessons in that was I had a friend who died, likewise, quite young, uh, of breast cancer. And um, not in terrible pain at the end, but she was close to her death and she'd closed her law practice and taken care of all her affairs and she'd done everything. And uh, by this time she was spending all her days in bed. And I went to see her either the morning of the day she died or the day before she died. And she was propped up in bed and she was reading the Chronicle. And I came in and there she was lying in bed reading the Chronicle. And I guess she must have seen that I, maybe I registered some surprise. I don't <laughs> Just, I don't know what you expect, but here she's reading the Chronicle. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I've done everything I was supposed to do. I've got nothing left to do, so I'm reading the Chronicle. <laughs> But, you know, if there's nothing that can be accomplished, you can just relax. You just read the Chronicle. or you. Don't you think my father said to me when he was in the hospital, and he said, I'm only worried about when he was in the nursing home, he said, the only thing I'm frightened about dying is I'm frightened about the minute that I die. He said, I think it'll be too unpleasant. I said, I don't think you'll know about it because it's likely that you'll be in a in a coma at that time, so you won't know. He said, you think so? I said, that's what I think. He said, okay, turn on the ball game. It sometimes gets easier than... Um, 
This is the Buddha. And how does a monk live as a refuge unto himself? This is from the last teaching of the Buddha before he died. And how does a monk live as a refuge unto himself? Here, Ananda, a monk abides contemplating the body as body, earnestly, clearly, aware, mindful, having put away, Joseph would say at this point, this is the important line, (laughs) having put away all hankering and fretting for the world, means I don't need it, hankering. We don't say that anymore. It's an old word. Do you remember it? It's I've got a hankering for. I bet there are people here who never heard that word. We also say I have a yen for. Remember that? Nobody says that anymore. Hankering for. But I need that. Having put aside all needing and fretting for the world. Shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be that way. This shouldn't be happening. I think I've been telling you, and I actually am practicing this. I have tried to expunge from the vocabulary of my mind when I think, when I say or think, I should, he shouldn't be doing that. I sh- he shouldn't have said that. Uh, because what I mean is I wish that he or she hadn't said that. Or I wish that this or that wasn't happening. If I say it shouldn't be happening, he shouldn't have said that, I'm having a problem with it should be different from that. It's not different than that. It's like this. And I, th- I think it's a, it's a small semantic difference. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. What difference does it make? I actually think that the whole difference, that the difference is whether or not there's an imperative in the mind. If I think it should have been different, like it could have been, then there's an imperative to change things. If it's like this, then there's no imperative. And I think it's imperative that's, that's really another word for suffering. It's the mind scrunched up as opposed to the mind relaxed. And it has nothing to do with liking it. It often worries people. Like it means you don't care about the world, the ecology, the this, the that. I don't think it means that at all. It means being able to say, wow, what's going on? I wish it were different. What can I do? But that doesn't have any scrunch in it. Mm-hmm. It should be different, you know, compared to what? In what world would it be different? Later on, they get robbed. Mm-hmm. And the line that, come, that he writes after that is, losing things can be freeing, provided that the mind can put them down. <laughs> and then he talks about how they, they, they follow through on that... Uh, on to go to the police, and the police say, we'll go with you to look for it. But then, so, okay, now you get up hope. The police are going to go with us. When are we going to go? We're going to go at 7 o'clock in the morning. Okay, 7 o'clock in the morning, we're going to go with the police and look for the what we got robbed of. And then the police don't show up at 7, then you're mad at the police. Is it, when you can put things down, say, this is the way it is. We'll see. Maybe the police will come. Maybe they won't come. Maybe they won't come. And, you know, it's so hard. It's hard for me to teach it and be sure that I have conveyed that that does not mean a sort of a a lukewarm attitude about things in the world. You know, I I really ardently, I just changed in my mind. I edited that. I was about to say passionately, and I changed it to ardently because I'm a little... Passionate is uh, passion's a complicated word. 
and we use dispassionate in a way that when it usually said so-and-so had a dispassionate attitude, it meant that they didn't have any feelings. I think it means... Um, what I'm trying to avoid is the feeling of inflammatory feelings. Mm-hmm. Ardent. I like. I ardently wish. Mm-hmm. There's a confusion about passion. This is a ridiculous story, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Uh, one of the things that I never really got behind completely was in the Brahma Vihara teachings of uh, there is goodwill and compassion and empathic joy and equanimity. And as you, we'll, we'll spend the, uh, the whole morning one day on all of them or, all, or one of them at the, at one at a time. But each of them, as uh, they're, they're actually called the divine abodes of the mind because it means that that's a mind that it's pleasant to live in. It's a d- good place to live in goodwill or a compassion or empathic joy or equanimity. And they're each said to have a near enemy, a near enemy as a mind state that looks like that and could be confused by, as that, but actually is sneakily not that. It's got a certain amount of self in it, like love, uh, that goodwill uh, sometimes has... Uh, since I love you, you have to be nice to me back, or I'm loving you for you be to be nice to me back, or I'll love you as long as you're that kind of a person, or as long as you do this or that. It has a little bit of a secret agenda of actually wanting something. Compassion uh, often has, unbeknownst to people, not purposely, not even with a, not with the goodwill either. Uh, compassion often is 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 complicated because when we come across something that's really really hard to 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 take in the enormity look at the asiana flight look at the wars in the world look at these children who don't have enough to eat it's so hard to look at and to imagine their situations that we don't even we can't let the mind that balks at feeling it really doesn't feel it uh, it feels bad about it. And there's some level of distance from it, like um, um, sometimes if, if I'm... Um, the near enemy is often named pity, but it's, it's something that makes you feel like suddenly there's a lot of people in here. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that that poor person over there is over there having their troubles, and I am over here. So pity often looks like compassion, but it's actually compassion at a distance. And equanimity, the near enemy of equanimity, is actually indifference. You look like you're so balanced, but actually there's no feeling heart behind the indifference. So the near enemy of mudita, which is really being happy for other people in the moment of, you know, really something good happens, said the near enemy is exuberance. So I never got quite, kind of got that. Because how could you have a near enemy of, of empathic joy if you're happy for other people? Well, how could that be? So the other day when the tour ended, early in the morning, because I was watching from the 5.30 thing on, and my guy, Nero Quintara, he finished in second place in a really astounding finish. 
jaws coming up to the finish. And they come up to a very steep hill, and he goes, vroom, up that hill. And he finished, and he took second place overall. I was so excited. I wrote an email to my friend, Guy Armstrong, who I knew was also following the tour, and also, as I was, you know, excited for Nero Quintana, Quintara. So I wrote him, that was great, what happened, da 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 Wasn't that wonderful, I'll see you tomorrow at Fair Rock or whatever I wrote. So I got an email back two hours later from the guy. He said, well, I'm glad to hear it. He said, actually, Sylvia, you should have in mind that uh, some of your sports friends, they either record it for later watching or they, or they watch it on the 5 o'clock NBC sports final of the day and they like not to know the, the who, what was the story until the end. So, uh, but I'm sure I'll enjoy it anyway. So, so then I think to myself, aha, that is the explanation of how mudita leads to exuberance that clouds the mind, and then you forget to think as you're writing to Guy. They forget to think Guy might not have seen it just now. Think so. That's what it means. Clouds the mind. So now I understand that particular Brahma Vihara teaching about that. So anyway. A number of people have come in the back of the room. It's like crowded. tell you, thank you very much. Actually, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all teared up. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. I, I thought about, um, when I came on Sunday night, this is a good thing to say, I came to Spirit Rock on Sunday night, I wasn't teaching I was just a person coming <laughs> to go sit up in the hall and see, I actually don't have to be enrolled in a retreat to go up there. <laughs> if one of my friends is teaching and I feel like hearing the teachings, I just infiltrate myself in. <laughs> so I went and I sat in the back and I listened to my friend teaching teachings that I really love, that spoke to my heart, that you heard some of this morning. And I looked at that beautiful hall, and I looked out at the hills, and I looked at all the people, all those retreatants there, ardent, ardent, all of them there sitting for some for 10 days, some for 17 days. And I thought to myself, I am so lucky. What a community to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, what, and I am also lucky to be so, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, um, in a community of people who find me dear. I don't know another way to say that. But I think I'm infiltrating myself into that room in a way that nobody notices. But actually, people noticing, they're doing a little secret. Little, little. And, and I thought to myself, this is a community that I love in which I am not invisible. 
and people care about me. And I felt so companioned, and I thought I felt really very, very good about it. So also, uh, in honor of my father, for whose blessing it was his favorite blessing, I am grateful to have been kept in life and sustained and to have made it until this day. Thank you very, very much. And I'll see you next week. (laughs) Thank you very, 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 very much. I have a great way to transport those if you want to bring them home. I do want to bring them home. What I do is I dump the water out and then just I put it in a shopping bag. And I have the shopping bag in my office. Wow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.